Today on Blue 58, opportunity is knocking in Green Bay after the Packers' first preseason game. Injuries, roster holes, and roster turnover are opening doors left and right. Who will step through? Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast of thepowersweep.com. I'm your host, John Meerdink, and I am happy to be with you here for another episode because we have something resembling an actual football game to talk about. Preseason game number one is in the books, and the Packers are going through practice Heading into preseason game number two, as we speak, the Patriots are in Green Bay. Hopefully the weather is awesome for everybody up in Green Bay getting to attend practice this week. Like I said last week, if you're thinking about going to practice, this is the week. Really about as good as it gets this week. Another team in town, preseason game number two. It's it's a great time to be in Green Bay. Hopefully you get a chance to get up there if that's something that you are interested in doing. But about that first preseason game, there were four-ish things that I wanted to talk about. Maybe five. Uh, but really, I don't think we know, need to go super deep on preseason game number one. Really, I mean, it, for one thing, it's Tuesday by now. But for another, I think we need to try to hold off on getting super deep on preseason stuff. I think there's been a tendency over the past couple of years to, to hyperfixate on some of the stuff, especially the down roster stuff and how things shake out in preseason games. It's not that much more important than family night, really. And I think even family night stuff is is kind of overhyped because it's just another practice. Really, the, the stuff that determines who's going to make the roster is what goes on day in and day out in practice, we're just seeing hopefully the finished results of that in the preseason games. We've got a question kind of that effect that we're going to take hopefully at the end of the episode here. We'll see how much we get to here. But as far as the preseason game goes, I think we got to start with Jordan Love. For me, he looked good enough. As Matt LaFleur has insisted on throughout this entire process, we're looking at process. We're not looking for the final results. We're looking for Jordan Love making decisions, operating the offense in and out of the huddle. It's hard for really anything else to matter results-wise because it's not really what the Packers are going to be doing in the regular season. And as we've talked about before, Love needs time. He needs extended reps to really see what he's doing well in a game situation. Even against the Eagles last year, his most significant, I think, extended playing time outside of the Chiefs game wasn't all that extended. It's hard to get in a rhythm to build on one drive after another, to put in, you know, play calls that are building on things you did earlier when you're just playing in fits and starts. Even in the preseason, you're not going to get past that very much. I'm interested to see how much he plays this weekend, but we'll see. So as far as what we can take away from that first game, I like the process. The misses to Luke Musgrave and Christian Watson were not great. Both of the misses to Musgrave, I thought, were, well, the the crossing route, there was some other stuff going on there, but the screen pass miss seems like a really, it seems like a, the more problematic situation there. But overall, again, no real issues. It felt good. And the touchdown drive, I thought, was especially nice. He gets a complete pass to Jaden Reed. He throws the, the screen pass and misses to Luke Musgrave, but then completes to Christian Watson on third and five. Awesome. Keep the chains moving there. Then you go complete to Dobbs, complete to Watson, and complete to Dobbs for a touchdown. Finish five for six, 32 yards, touchdown, cashed in on the short field. That's pretty great. The execution there is exactly what you want. The next thing we would look to see there is a long touchdown drive, but steps in the right direction. 
As far as things on my checklist, on my what I want to see from a quarterback checklist, this is a really good thing. Scoring points in advantageous situations is how you really crush teams. Think of, think of it as you know a phrase that we use fairly often on this podcast, making your layups. You've got to do the easy things well. If you've got a short field in front of you and for that touchdown drive, I think they took over on the the Cincinnati 43 or 45. It was in, in Bengals territory. They're already knocking on the edge of field goal range there. Get it in. And they did. Other than that, want to see the long touchdown drive? That would be great. But also, and we won't see this until the regular season, the four-minute drive. This is something that the Packers and Aaron Rodgers did really well in both 2020 and 2021, less so in 2022 because they weren't leading that often. But those two years, they would get the ball four, five, six minutes left in the game up by however much it was and just take the air out of the football, run the clock out. The other team would never get the ball back in – any sort of situation where they could threaten to score points and make it a game again. That is advanced quarterbacking. That is That makes you so hard to beat when you can do things like that. Just eliminate opportunities for other teams to beat you by just taking all of the time away. And if Love can do that well this year, then the Packers might really have something. Also at quarterback, we've got to talk about Sean Clifford. He's a gunner, isn't he? Uh, sometimes writing some checks that his arm can't quite cash, but overall moved the ball and kept it entertaining. Dusty Evely did a tremendous breakdown of his night. If you want 40-something minutes on what the Packers' number two quarterback did in a preseason game, Dusty's your guy. And I mean this in you know with nothing but love, but Dusty is a crazy person. He's there's something potentially a little bit wrong with Dusty, and I don't think he would argue with that when he sits down and says, I want to look at this backup quarterback for 40-something minutes. But, you know, in all seriousness, it's important to look at things like that because Clifford in particular is a good example of how you can get a good result with bad process. Clifford got away with some things that he probably wouldn't get away with in the regular season, Still, it's important that he got the results, and you're not going to p- complain about good results, but just remember that it may not be sustainable. Would highly recommend Dusty's look at that if you if you want some more insight on how, how that all works together. But I think based on what he did in that game, the competition for the number two job is essentially over. Alex Magoo had a lot of ground to make up as it, you know, just coming in behind both Danny Etling and Sean Clifford. It looks like it's Clifford's job to lose, I think, unless there's a big change, an injury, something like that. Clifford's got the job, and Magoo will probably be on the practice squad, which, hey, not too shabby. On defense, Lucas Van Ness had a quiet debut, but I was encouraged by it. I've seen some hand-wringing about how unrefined he is as a pass rusher. I don't really get that as a complaint at this point because, yeah, he's unrefined as a pass rusher. That's always been the knock on him. Is that something you thought was going to change between August and April? He hasn't played actual football in four months. You had some OTA stuff. Do you think he was going to develop a pass rushing repertoire by now? And don't forget, he's fairly inexperienced as an edge rusher just to begin with. We talked about the number of pass rush reps that guys had taken on the edge in our pre-draft process, even accounting for the fact that he didn't like start games in college, and we know that's not that big of a deal just because of how Iowa does things. But even accounting for that, 
he had far fewer reps than just about anybody considered a high-end prospect in this year's draft class. He just hasn't done it a whole lot. So why are you encouraged, John? You're probably asking. Well, the thing about edge rushers is that you could really have one of two things. You can have a guy who's an athletic marvel or a guy who's a technician. And if it comes down to drafting a guy, I'm going to take the guy who's the athletic freak show over the guy who is technically sound because I think there is more growth to the guy who has the high athletic ceiling or maybe the high athletic floor if you want to look at it that way than there is the guy who has to come in and win from day one by being really good at the technical aspects of pass rushing. You can learn to become technically sound. You cannot learn to become a more elite athlete than you really start out as. I mean, within reason. There are some growth opportunities athletically, but if you are a below average athlete coming into the NFL, you're not going to become an above average athlete by the time you're in what, your third or fourth year. But how but you can become a much better technical player at every position. That's true across the board. That's why you take these guys with these high athletic upsides. And I think even in the limited stuff that we saw from Van Ness on Saturday, his strength pops. His strength is obvious. He can move guys around. He can throw guys around uh, pretty much at will. The question is, how quickly does he harness that into you know actual football ability? That remains to be seen. But I was encouraged by what I saw. Yeah, he's raw, but that's okay. Finally, Carrington Valentine. If you were on the fence about him, remove yourself from the fence, I would say. He has locked up a roster spot. Looks the part is overused, but he looks the part. He looks like an NFL defensive back. He moves like an NFL defensive back. He's aggressive in run support. He he finds the ball, and the ball finds him. I don't really know what else you would want, and it looks like the Packers have another intriguing role available or another intriguing person available here in the secondary. There is some bad news coming out of the first preseason game, as there always is, and I don't know, maybe you are a healthy football fan, so you don't think about things like this, but I sit here and worry from the start of training camp until it happens who the first major injury is going to be. We got our answer Saturday night. Tyler Davis goes down with a torn ACL. A bummer for him. Could not be really timed worse for him because looking at where he's at with his contract situation, I don't know if there's going to be teams lining up to sign a guy coming off a torn ACL given where he kind of fits within the league-wide tight end strata. He just doesn't really auger as a guy who is going to get another opportunity coming off a torn ACL. Really didn't have the pre-injury production, and for a guy whose primary role is on special teams, there just isn't a lot of opportunity there. That special teams impact is going to be significant in Green Bay, though, because he was primarily a special teams player. Nobody played more special teams snaps last year in Green Bay than Tyler Davis did. And his main responsibility were as a wing on the field goal unit and as a quote-unquote defensive lineman on punk block. The the punt block stuff is going to take care of itself, as we'll talk about here in a second. But I think the wing is a concern because the two guys who operated on the wings in last year's field goal unit and extra point unit are now gone. Tyler Davis and Mercedes Lewis. They primarily held those jobs down last year. And that was the big change or one of the big changes that Rich Bisaccia made schematically was using tight ends in those roles as opposed to guys like, say, Dean Lowry and Tyler Lancaster. Tyler Lancaster in particular, we saw, 
in that sort of spot in 2021 to disastrous effect on multiple occasions. Couldn't learn their lesson fast enough on that one. Anyway, with Tyler Davis gone, that leaves Tucker Craft as the lone wing available in Green Bay. He took those snaps with Davis on Saturday. Who fills that role now? In theory, it's going to be Austin Allen. He's the first man up and really, as Bill Huber of Sports Illustrated put it in a a look at how he stacks up here, really the only man up because you've got Musgrave, you've got Kraft, you've got Austin Allen, and really the only other tight end available is Dre Miller, who is back playing tight end after converting to wide receiver from tight end, which is what he played in New York when he was with the Giants, having converted to tight end from wide receiver in college. I don't know if you followed all that, but he wide receiver in college, tight end with the Giants, wide receiver with the Packers, now tight end with the Packers. Suffice it to say, they're not just drowning in tight end options right now, especially since Josiah DeGuara appears to be mostly a fullback consideration at this point. But Austin Allen, the I guess technically he's a first-year player. He's in his second year with the Packers after spending most of last year in the practice squad with the Packers. He comes into his second year with the Packers. Let's put it that way. In terms of the accrued season, stuff like that, all that doesn't really matter. Uh, I, other than for Austin Allen and how much money he makes. But for our purposes, it really only matters that he's in his second year with the Packers. Six foot eight, 253 pounds out of Nebraska for a little bit of context on that height and weight. He is the same weight as Luke Musgrave, just two inches taller and quite athletic overall. An 8.06 overall relative athletic score. Just okay in the speed stuff. Four eight three forty yard dash. No elite splits in the 10 or 20 yard ranges. But surprisingly agile for a six foot eight tight end. Uh, tested well in both the shuttle and three cone drills. Surprisingly athletic and agile for a draft, I would put it that way. He's got a real opportunity here. Really probably the biggest opportunity on the Packers right now to go from relative afterthought to core contributor. If he can show that he can block both as a tight end and on special teams, I think he's got a real shot to make the roster now just because there's nobody else available. And as far as Tyler Davis's other duties on special teams, playing as a defensive lineman, Austin Allen has already shown that he can do that. Based on training camp reports, he's already got two blocked punts under his belt, rushing from basically the same position that Tyler Davis would have played. That's a, a great example of why being you know, really, really tall can be a really great asset at just about any position. It sure works at tight end. It gives him some additional value on special teams, and it may help be his ticket to the roster. As far as other options the Packers have, as we said, they've got Dre Miller in terms of free agents. It's pretty sparse out there right now, and to the point that it's really not even worth talking about, I think, anybody who's out there until the Packers make a move. And as of, well, as of, Uh, tryout Tuesday. It didn't look like they were going to have anybody in camp or, well, I guess, yeah, technically in camp. They're not going to have anybody in Green Bay trying out at tight end, according to the list of tryouts that came out yesterday. It may be a rough year in Green Bay for my favorite position. You've got two guys that are going to be growing into their roles as NFL players. You've got Austin Allen, you've got Dre Miller, and you've got Josiah DeGuara. Not really uh, a well-rounded group at this point, but growth opportunities there. I have to wonder if maybe Mercedes Lewis gets a call if uh, Tyler Davis tears his knee earlier in camp rather than right now. But man, if the road to hell is paved with good intentions, you know, paving it with what ifs couldn't be too far behind there either. Speaking of opportunities, 
We've got to talk a little bit, I think, about Emmanuel Wilson, who had one of the most, I guess, eye-catching performances of the first preseason game. In case you've forgotten, and I don't want to say we forgot, but we just haven't talked about him a whole lot, had pretty low expectations for him coming in as an undrafted free agent after this year's draft already with his second team when he arrived with the Packers. But Wilson, a five foot ten, two hundred and twenty nine pound prospect at a Fort Valley State in Georgia, a Division two prospect, had a six eight three relative athletic score at his pro day. However, crucially, as we noted when he signed with the Packers around OTAs, a four five five forty yard dash at that weight, which to return to a number we talk about a lot, gives him a speed score of one oh six point nine. He moves his mass really well, even if the 455 isn't all that impressive, doing it at 229 pounds does matter. Again, Fort Valley State is in Georgia, Division II school, and I think if you want to be optimistic about Emmanuel Wilson's chances, you can be right now because of a couple of things. First, the Packers do like their big-bodied backs. Other than Tyler Goodson and Aaron Jones, it's big A.J. Dillon, big Patrick Taylor, big Lou Nichols, and big Emmanuel Wilson. Now, Wilson isn't tall, but he's He's got quite a lot of mass to him at 229 pounds. If the competition really comes down to the three big bodies behind Jones and Dillon, that reframes things a little bit. And it may be that's the case with Tyler Goodson a little bit banged up. So it comes down to who can pass block and who can catch. All these guys will probably be fairly comparable in terms of running ability when they're going against number one defenses. They're all pretty athletic. They can all move their mass pretty well. And I, I think when it comes down to, you know, those those two things, pass blocking and catching, throw in a little special teams there and you've you've got a real competition. And Patrick Taylor is probably at the head of the competition right now. If it's between those three things, between just the big guy in there, Tyler Goodson being different, I think gives him a different route to the roster. But if he's going to be hurt and if the Packers are showing this much of a preference for their big backs, I think reframing it that way probably makes some sense. Now, if you are more inclined to be ultra-realistic about Wilson, there is a little bit of, I think, justified water you can throw on his performance, which was fun, and it did have some nice personal aspects to it. He put out a post on Instagram leading up to the game about how it had been something like 14 years since he lost his father, and this was going to be a, a great opportunity for him. Really, really exciting from that aspect. However, just statistically, you have to look at when guys are playing and when they're putting up their numbers. Wilson didn't get his first touch of the game until there were about nine minutes left in the third quarter. And not to take anything away from any of the the guys that are playing on an NFL roster in an NFL camp right now, but those are not the best and brightest out there, really on either side of the ball at that point. There is an aspect of just putting up numbers against guys that are probably not going to be on NFL rosters here in about three weeks. That said, that cuts both ways. Wilson might not be playing against elite competition, but he is playing well against the guys that are in front of him. He can't control when he plays, but he can do what he he can when he's out there. And when he was out there, it was pretty great. An 80-yard touchdown run is going to turn people's heads regardless of when it happens, and he scored twice. So a great, exciting opportunity for him, and I think maybe uh, an interesting competition for the Packers' third running back spot on the way here in Green Bay. Now, a couple questions before we say goodbye for this episode. This first one, I think, pertains especially to Sean Clifford, as we kind of described him as, uh, well, 
let's just get into the question here and you'll see how it probably pertains to Sean Clifford. Ray asks, how much credence do you give to the idea of a player being a, a gamer? Recently heard someone discuss it as being a real thing, but also generally unsustainable. Just curious about your thoughts on the idea. Now, as I understand it, and as I've used it in the past, gamer usually just means a guy who plays well in games and we notice it. This is a guy who doesn't necessarily get a lot of consistent reporting in in training camp or, or in practice, doesn't turn heads either because he's maybe not physically overwhelming or just doesn't have that big of a role. But when the lights come on, he really turns it on. I do believe in things like this, like guys who aren't necessarily impressive in practice, but are able to turn it on in, in games. And the reason for that is some guys are great even though they barely practice. Maybe David Bakhtiari is a sore spot for some people out there, but he was a good example of that last year. He didn't practice a whole lot, but when he was out there, he was he was really, really good. For an older example, Chad Clifton, after his encounter with Warren Sapp in the early 2000s, really never practiced regularly again for the Packers, but he was a very dependable player for a really, really long time. Another example from a different team, though the same era basically as Chad Clifton, was Steve McNair with the Tennessee Oilers and Titans. He was consistently banged up just because of how he played and rarely practiced late in his career, but still was lights out on Sundays. He knew what he had to do to get it done when the games were going to happen. However, I think usually gamer just kind of means chaotic too, which can be a good thing because sometimes I think just coming in and being different, being you know the, the left-handed pitcher or the knuckleball pitcher, just a guy who's different in a way that you weren't expecting, can be good. And maybe if you're willing to do things that other guys are not willing to do, throw throws that guys are not willing to attempt, like maybe Sean Clifford did a couple times on Saturday, you can kind of fall into that gamer category because you're not doing things necessarily by the book, but you're getting things done. However, I think describing someone as a gamer is a precursor to being disappointed. I agree with the idea that it's unsustainable because most good players that are actually good are just good all the time. If you take gamer how most people use it, it really just means a guy who's good at his job some of the time, which is really not what you're looking for if you're trying to build a roster. However, if you're looking for a guy who you're just going to throw out there from time to time and just let him be a little bit crazy and shake things up a little bit, I think there is a value to having a guy like that on your roster and and really just turning him loose from time to time, seeing what happens. Old Packers fan asks, with Rasheed Walker and Carrington Valentine coming on strong and injuries changing the depth chart, how many bottom of the roster spot surprises or surprise veteran cuts do you expect? Not a lot, but I think there are some vulnerable players there. On offense, I don't know if anybody on the offensive line would qualify as a particularly surprising cut, but I think veterans like Royce Newman and Jake Hansen are vulnerable. The upside for both of them is that there seem to be fewer options on the interior line, so if they can just show some kind of baseline competence, they might have a chance to make the 53-man roster this year. The Packers have a good problem of sorts in that they, they have a ton of tackles that they like, but you can't keep just tackles and skating by as an interior lineman might just be the ticket to your, the roster if the Packers are really concerned about having depth and experience at those positions. If you think a guy like Rasheed Walker, just to pull a name, could bump inside and play guard if you had to have him there, 
well, then maybe a guy like Jake Hansen or Royce Newman becomes a little bit more vulnerable. But I think the fact that they're really kind of dialed in on those positions gives them a little bit more roster credibility than they might have otherwise because neither of them have been particularly spectacular in their Packers career to this point. But the fact that they play a position that seems to be in fairly short supply might give them another chance. On defense, I think that Jonathan Owens does not have a guaranteed roster spot right now. He's one of the Packers' few free agent signings, and he's been you know, an interesting story. Uh, what with Simone Biles and their connection there. Well, connection, they're married. Uh, but you understand what I'm saying. It's, it's a fun story. It's a fun off-season storyline. I don't think he should get too comfortable in Green Bay, even if he's getting snaps at the number one defense, because a, a bunch of guys have gotten snaps at the number one defense. Similarly, I don't think Rudy Ford should be overly comfortable just because he started games for the Packers last year and has some special teams value. We didn't see a whole lot of Rudy Ford on Saturday night, did we? I think if anybody emerges at safety, everybody else gets a whole lot more vulnerable. And with Anthony Johnson apparently now getting some shots with the number one offense, there's just a new player in the game as the Packers look for somebody, anybody to just step up and say, I want the safety job. Someone's going to win it. The Packers would prefer that someone not win it by default. Hopefully it's because somebody steps up, but I don't think anybody has a guaranteed roster spot. And just because they were signed in the offseason to the Packers, one of the Packers' few free agent deals, that may not mean anything uh, for a guy like Owens. Sticking in the secondary, I think Shamar Jean Charles and Corey Ballantyne might be vulnerable, especially when you talk about, uh, not Rasul Douglas, Eric Stokes coming back. Rasul Douglas and Jair Alexander have things locked down on the outside. Keyshawn Nixon seems to be their preferred slot guy. And if you think Carrington Valentine has a roster spot locked up, and I do, just starting to count heads there, it's getting sparse at corner, especially since Stokes apparently is going to be coming back at some point. We don't know exactly when, but when he comes back, they'll want him on the roster. Who goes at that point? My money would be on Corey Ballantyne because I don't think Shamar John Charles is going to make the roster anyway, but we will see. That's all I've got for you in this episode of Blue 58. I appreciate you tuning in. I would appreciate it even more if you would take a second and share this episode with someone you think would enjoy it. It's going to help more people find the show and get more people involved in this conversation you and I are having about the Green Bay Packers, which in turn is going to help all of us, me included, become smarter Packers fans. And as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We'll see you next time on Blue 58.